Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in for the show. We're speaking here on Tuesday, September 26, 2023, and we're back digging into the issue of housing today, looking at it from a particular angle, a particular new set of policy proposals. By many accounts, housing, of course, the most pressing issue facing New York City and New York State in terms of overall livability, health, competitiveness. Uh, opportunities for growth, opportunities for people to have a decent standard of living and afford uh, to live in New York City and surrounding areas. Lots of challenges around this issue and a multitude of angles to the overall housing crisis that we have in New York City. My guest today is Dan Gorodnik, the director of the New York City Department of City Planning and chair of the City Planning Commission. Dan Gorodnik has held those roles since early 2022, named to the positions by the new mayor at the time, Eric Adams. Dan Gorodnik is a former city council member, uh, well-versed in many of the issues that he's now taken on as planning director in the city. He is here to discuss the details of a new proposal from the administration of Mayor Eric Adams to change rules across the city about what can be built where and to try to produce more housing everywhere. In other words, it's a significant zoning proposal to shift the landscape of housing growth all over New York City and, as the administration has started to put it, build a little more housing in every neighborhood. By the administration's estimate, this zoning proposal, it's multifaceted, I'll get into the details in a minute, if passed through the city council next year, it's about to go through a lengthy land use review process, would add roughly 100,000 new homes to the city's housing stock over the next 15 years. So helpful, but also only a piece of the roughly 500,000 new homes that Mayor Adams hopes to see built in the city over the next decade, part of what he calls a moonshot goal that will require major action at both the city and state levels, as well as help from the federal government. Mayor Adams, Deputy Mayor for Housing Maria Torres Springer, and Planning Director Gorodnik recently unveiled more details about one big piece of the Adams administration's housing plan, these proposed citywide zoning changes. And zoning, of course, is the rules about what can be built where, how big, what types of things, and so on. Adams, who wants New York City to become a city of yes when it comes to growth and embrace hundreds of thousands of new homes for several reasons, including to ensure that the city can catch up on its insufficient pace of building new housing to keep up with job and population growth, and to ensure that there's some dent in the crushing affordability crisis in the city where demand has so outstripped supply that huge percentages of New Yorkers are what's called rent burdened or severely rent burdened. More than half of all New Yorkers are rent burdened, which means paying more than 30% of their monthly income on rent. Over the last decade, there's only been about 200,000 new housing units built in New York City while the city gained more than 600,000 new residents and nearly a million jobs. Now, there's a lot of funky data because of COVID shifts. Uh, we are still wrestling with a few hundred thousand 
people loss in population in the city. Estimates are rough. There's been shifts in different directions during the worst of COVID and then in sort of the post-COVID era. And so I think a lot of this data is going to get sorted out a bit more in the coming year or so. But undoubtedly, New York City still has not been able to have its housing growth keep up with demand. And we've seen a particularly acute need for deeply affordable housing. Now, there's a lot of different angles to get into there, but we're going to talk here today largely about the Adams administration's new zoning reform plan, which again is about changing the sort of just baseline zoning rules across the city in several key ways. There are seven planks to this plan. Um, There were significant but vastly uh, insufficient attempts at tackling the city's housing supply and affordable housing crisis during the de Blasio administration, including the passage of some major changes to citywide zoning. There were a few different uh, pieces of that, but perhaps most prominently was what's called mandatory inclusionary housing, known as MIH, which requires a certain percentage of affordable units in new development when the developer gets city approval via the mayoral administration and the city council and the city planning commission and other stakeholders, but ultimately through the city council, to build more than they otherwise could as of right based on the existing zoning of the property. So they get a change in the zoning and for a boost in what they're allowed to build on the piece of land, they are required to include certain percentages of affordable units. That's mandatory inclusionary housing, a huge change to the city's housing landscape, but of course requires that there's new housing being built to take advantage of it. The de Blasio administration also passed a uh, half a dozen or so neighborhood rezonings to apply mandatory inclusionary housing across across a swath of, of community territory, meaning that you rezone those areas and then any development that occurs in those rezoned areas, the mandatory inclusionary housing requirements kick in, among other things. They change zoning rules in those uh, areas in a variety of ways that can relate to uh, economic development and other things, and usually accompanying all that, a variety of investments, community improvements, uh, new dollars for parks and other public spaces, and, and all sorts of things, depending on the neighborhood at hand. But the crisis, of course, has persisted and in some ways has only gotten worse in recent years. And it's part of why Mayor Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul have unveiled very ambitious sweeping housing proposals over the last couple of years. They have yet to get most of the necessary support in the state legislature, especially a lot of what Mayor Adams wants to do needs state approval and just about all of what Governor Hochul wants to do needs state legislative approval. Uh, But also there are some big tests coming to the city council, which has taken a much more sort of pro-housing growth approach over the first year and a half of this current city council class. But this new zoning proposal will be among the big tests of where this city council is in terms of housing growth and changes in the city. Mayor Adams has three broad sets of changes to the city's zoning that he's unveiled under the banner of City of Yes. 
But the housing one called City of Yes for Housing Opportunity is the third of the three. It followed City of Yes for Carbon Neutrality. It's City of Yes for Economic Development, uh, each of which is already working its way through the land use review process and will need approval ultimately through the city council to change different zoning rules that we're talking about here today around uh, housing. Uh, we won't get to uh, the other City of Yes pieces with Dan Gorodnik today. We're going to focus on housing opportunity, but we might dig in on those in a future episode, either with bringing Dan Gorodnik back or uh, others to talk about those pieces. Like the other two, City of Yes for Housing Opportunity is a zoning text amendment looking to change citywide rules about what can be built where that have largely been in place since 1961. So Dan Gorodnik, the director of city planning in New York City, is going to get into the details with me here today. But first, just before I bring him on, let me give you the seven planks to this City of Yes for Housing Opportunity Plan. And then you'll hear uh, Dan Gorodnik touch on most of them, if not all, in this conversation. So one piece is called universal affordability preference, which would allow uh, buildings to add 20% more housing, but only if the additional units are affordable. Second plank, office to residential conversions. This would be allowing for new rules to allow for vacant offices and other commercial buildings to become homes. Third, they're calling town center zoning. This would allow the legalization of new housing above first floor businesses on many commercial strips where it's not currently allowed. Uh, this would allow a variety of what are called mixed use areas of the city. Fourth, uh, removing parking mandates. Uh, anything related to uh, parking, of course, uh, gets controversial quick, and that'll be one of the most interesting pieces of this discussed. But currently, New York City requires off-street parking along with new housing in many parts of the city when new housing is built. This zoning text amendment would end parking mandates for new houses, as has happened in a, a number of places around the state and the country, uh, especially in recent years, but will still allow the option uh, for developers to add parking, uh, but it just wouldn't be required. Fifth, accessory dwelling units. This would allow uh, new units such as backyard cottages, garage conversions, and other smaller forms of new homes to allow homeowners to add those to their properties. Now, uh, which properties this applies to will uh, very much depend on uh, what happens at the state level in the coming legislative session, uh, but we'll get to that maybe with Dan Gorodnik in this conversation. Sixth, transit-oriented development. This is adding more housing near public transit hubs. Uh, the regulations here would allow three to five story apartment buildings uh, across the city uh, near public transit uh, and in some other places as well that are applicable here. And then seventh out of seven, 
of the planks of this zoning text amendment. They call it campuses. This is uh, many campuses across the city with underused space that could be turned into housing if allowed. Uh, this would make it easier to add housing to uh, properties that are owned by, in some cases, uh, private schools or churches and other uh, houses of worship. Uh, NYCHA, public housing, of course, lots of discussion often about um NYCHA infill, as it's called, and that came up in a conversation I had recently with uh, the leadership at NYCHA. If you want to find that conversation, that one with the new NYCHA leadership is uh, available wherever you get podcasts at Max Politics. After you listen to this one with Dan Gorodnik, the city's director of city planning, you can find that conversation on NYCHA and many others in the podcast feed. But right now, let's get to Dan Gorodnik. And so again, Dan Gorodnik is with me today, appointed by Mayor Eric Adams in early 2022 to serve as director of the New York City Department of City Planning and chair of the City Planning Commission and a leading voice behind this proposal to change the city's zoning in the most significant way, the administration says, since 1961. Dan Gorodnik, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So um, 30,000 feet here till we, before we get into all the details and the weeds. How do you capture for people what the administration is out to do? I said in the introduction, there's obviously uh, ongoing housing supply, affordable housing, homelessness crises that are all you know part of the part of the same issue. Uh, the city is trying to take that on in a number of ways, including this new proposal to change zoning rules across the city. How do you capture for people what's sort of at the root of the mission here? Well, I think we all recognize where we are as uh, as a city and the challenges that people are facing right now, um, you know, with 50 percent of New Yorkers who are rent burdened, meaning they pay more than 30 percent of their income on rent. Some neighborhoods, even a higher uh, number than 50, um, where you are seeing the human costs of the lack of housing supply in New York, whether that is gentrification pressures uh, or the exorbitant cost of rent uh, or the imbalance between uh, the the power dynamic of landlords and tenants in New York City. I mean, when if you're a tenant and not protected by state law and you're faced with a, a big rent hike or the need to have repairs done in your unit or building and you don't have any choices, uh, you don't have much leverage here. You uh, mm-hmm. You have to sort of eat it. And that is not a good di- dynamic for tenants of New York City. We don't need to live this way. Uh, we don't need our policies to jam us in this direction. And that is the reason why we are proposing some very, very big changes uh, in New York City zoning. As you noted, the biggest uh, in the history of New York City zoning for the purpose of housing supply. And it's an effort to address the housing crisis by building a little bit more housing in every neighborhood of the city. Um, our view here and our hope here is that a little bit more housing everywhere can create the sort of housing that we need uh, without the 
dramatic changes that people fear happening in any single place. And that is what motivates this conversation. We recognize there is a real need for us to act now. And so we're putting out a proposal that will take us for the next 60 years uh, as a matter of responsible growth in housing for New York. Since you mentioned it, this is sort of another big picture question, but um, do you feel confident that you are going bold enough? You know, you talk about balancing the need for growth and also not hitting on such a plan for housing growth everywhere that it might trigger some of those fears and some of that bigger backlash, which we obviously just saw with Governor Hochul's statewide proposal that that triggered a lot of that. And there wasn't uh, as robust of an education effort behind that. And there obviously isn't the ability for what you're doing here, which is to sort of craft this proposal and then enter it into this year-long land use review process with lots of stakeholder involvement and feedback from the community boards and on on we go um but do you you know i i there's lots of praise out there from housing experts from elected officials who have sort of a pro-growth mentality um there's also some housing experts who said well i wish they had gone a little bolder how do you balance that and and is this a plan that's really crafted in part to make sure that at the end of the day, even with some adjustments, the city council will pass this as needed about a year from now. Yeah, well, I think that it's a it's a really interesting question. And I think that, um, you know, on balance, the reaction that I have seen is, well, this is a big, bold proposal, and I'm glad they went as bold as they did. And the marginal comment might be, wow, maybe could they have done anything more? Uh, But I understand all that and certainly um, recognize that there could always be differences of opinion on how far you go and whether you've gone enough or or perhaps the bigger worry, have you gone too far? Because at the end of the day, this does need to get passed by somebody. Um, And even in the boldest and most ambitious proposal in New York City's history, Um, We recognize that because of its complexity, because of the the dynamic of politics, that we are going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that this thing gets over the goal line. So I don't worry at all about this being bold enough. I feel like we're in a really, really strong position on that front. The real question here is, how do we make sure that people understand the need for us to create housing in New York, the need for us to do it to address directly those human consequences of housing scarcity? And I think people are now connecting the dots. Wow, rent is high. It's because I don't have options. That is really an important point here. And I think people are are are, are now connecting those dots. So I think that we are um, we're we're in a place where it's a a bold proposal that we need to now work on finding a way uh, to get it across the goal line. And of course, two pieces of that. One is in the inevitable negotiations that happen here, of course, something coming from the mayoral administration that needs city council approval, there will be negotiations just like uh, when the city council has proposed bills, there's a negotiation with the uh, administration and and obviously the city budget uh, is full of those types of things as well. Um, The challenge of not having those negotiations informed by the community boards, informed by the borough presidents, informed by other feedback, not having those negotiations ultimately with the city council 
chip away too much at the boldness here uh, that is here. We can get back into that in a minute. And and the other piece here, of course, is, um, you know, in order to talk about whether this is uh, right size perfectly or not bold enough or too bold in certain ways, we'll need to get into the specifics, which we'll do in just one second. And maybe there's some pieces we could talk about why you landed where you landed here. Um, but just staying big picture for another minute, you um, you have already been having a lot of similar conversations to what you just talked about, about sort of helping people get to a little bit more understanding of why the city's affordable affordability crisis is what it is, housing supply and demand issues, all sorts of things that relate to your job as uh, leading the city's planning department and the, and the commission. Um, you've been having those conversations a lot more in your year and a half in the role. Are there ways that you go into community meetings, meetings with different stakeholders, elected officials, and have found the most success sort of framing things or pieces of the conversation that you think are most helpful in informing the conversations that are to come now on this proposal? Are there ways that you have found sort of the discussion best framed as you go into these conversations with people who maybe get that the city's housing supply has not kept up with growth and with demand, but are also very concerned about ramifications related to growth, especially more housing in their neighborhoods? Yeah, I think that the the, the piece of this that is most resonating with stakeholders is the universality of it. This is not an individual project in a single district. This isn't even a neighborhood plan, which we also have, you know, a number of those too. This is an effort for us to all join hands, recognize the problem and say, we are prepared to act in New York City using the powers that are exclusively within our control to be able to advance real positive policy outcomes uh, in this area. And I think that that is what is so different about this proposal than other um, land use conversations that we frequently have with people. It is a little bit everywhere. Everybody is in this. Nobody is exempt. It's also respectful, thoughtful, done with finesse in a way that you know, is not designed to, you know, turn communities upside down. It's actually designed to create a little bit everywhere to help us meet our goals. We think together it'll deliver 100,000 units of housing over 15 years, which is like the population of, you know, Buffalo, um, you know, uh, 250,000 people it would house. So this is this is a meaningful move. And we think that we do it by, you know, broadening the geography here. We think we can do it in a way which really makes sense. And people People um, uh, respond to that argument. There's sort of a question here. Maybe you've already said what your answer is is to this. You know, there's a question here about sort of what makes you think and the mayor think and other uh, powers that be here, the deputy mayor, uh, Torres Springer, who I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, makes you think that you can sort of be successful here on this effort where others fail to see some of this type of thing through, never even got it off the ground, even if they talked about it, challenges during different mayoralties that led to more limited growth than, than some people wanted. Is there something about 
the moment we're in? Is there something about the way this is uh, crafted? What do you think can lead you to be successful here where nobody's done this since 1961? Right. I think it's clear that others have failed in their efforts to add uh, significant amounts of housing, and nobody has ever attempted to do what we are trying to do here. So those are two big and important points. The reason why I think that this is different is one, because of the moment that we are in, the the dramatic challenge that people are feeling today and the, the pressures that they are feeling as a result of housing scarcity, it is real and it has gotten worse and worse and worse. In the last decade, we've created 800,000 jobs and 200,000 homes. You know, we have in the past 40 years, our city grew by 1.7 million more people and we built the homes at half the rate that we did in the prior 40 years when our population actually shrank. These are numbers on a, you know, on a chart or numbers out there in the world to some, but for actual human beings, this is hurting them. This is making them feel pain and they are struggling as a result. We don't need to live like this. Our policies are set up to force that dynamic. No more. So we start from point one, which is people are really feeling this and we need to give them relief. Point two is that, and it's connected to point one, which is those human beings are represented by elected officials who are well aware of those challenges. And they're more aware of those challenges than they have ever been in their history, which is why when you hear the speaker of the city council in her state of the city speech talk about the challenges and her priorities, she is putting affordable housing, affordable housing creation at the top of her agenda, even the possibility of doing this in a citywide approach, much like what we're proposing here. You hear individual council members making this a real uh, key part of their own individual agendas, not just in their own districts, but doing it more broadly. So we think that there is a moment right now for us to do something bold. And and we you know, I don't want to minimize the complexity of that. But I also think that we have the right combination of factors and, and we are doing our work, I will note, at the Department of City Planning and in the administration to educate, to hear from people, to think through this process, to give ourselves enough time to be able to digest and process and refine as necessary. We are just now starting our environmental review process on this proposal which means that it is not going to have a vote in the city council for, you know, the better part of a year. It'll be referred over to community boards, not before spring. So we actually have some time for some serious conversations about what this all means and where we want to go. That's also different. We're giving ourselves the, the space to be able to engage and talk about this thoughtfully in the process. As even semi-regular listeners to this podcast, no, this is you know this has been the the main focus topic of of many many conversations I've had over the last couple of years um, with you know people with a lot of different perspectives on uh, housing or roles in different processes and it is it, it is just amazing how much the conversation has changed as the crises have become more acute and there's been more research published and different leaders have taken on the issue in different ways and. Um, it, it, you know, it's really remarkable how the conversation has shifted. And uh, one of the things which, you know, I'm interested in your perspective on one of the things, though, that a lot of times um, the conversation does 
come back to is this is this combination of factors that we're sort of um, touching on here, which is one, you know, to be a city that's growing, more housing availability is obviously beneficial in many ways to people already here as you're getting at, right? But then there's also the question of, is this a city that people can continue to come to, whether it's from other countries or from other places around the state or from other places around uh, around the country? Uh, people who grow up in New York City and go away to college and then want to come back and find an affordable place to live in the city. People who want to come to New York City to make uh, a life for themselves for any number of reasons, like so many have over the course of uh, centuries. And that the people who aren't here, who are part of a growing city, they just there there's just no real voice in the process, right? And they're sort of imaginary, and it's very challenging to get elected officials to pay attention to their maybe potential future constituents when they've got some group of current constituents who don't really want more housing because they own property, which is obviously very different category than the renters we're talking about. Um, and and they're happy with you know the current conditions in their in their uh, neighborhoods, and they're not really into the idea of of more housing coming to their community. And that challenge of getting people to think about a growing, thriving city of opportunity and the future constituents versus some of the people that are already there and own uh, own apartments or own houses and are not so into growth, um, and, and that sort of that factor leads a lot of people, even people who are pro-housing, to talk about housing as a burden. <laughs> and you say, you, you hear people talk, and, and I've had this exchange with a few people here where even people are talking about, we need to grow. I'm, I'm in favor of more housing. But then what do we do for the communities where the housing is coming to because it's, you know, it, it, it is such a, it's, it's such a challenge and such a burden. How do you sort of shift that conversation from housing feeling like a burden to people to feeling like part of just a growing, thriving uh, city? So uh, I think it's a really interesting point to talk about future residents versus the current ones that you have. And, um, you know, putting homeowners aside for a second, because I do want to talk to talk to that point specifically in a moment, because there is a fair amount in this proposal, which is really designed to be relief for homeowners in New York City. Um, but the the pressures that people are feeling who live here today, they have an alignment of interest with those future New Yorkers who want to come here because the cost of living here today is affecting them. And if we lower the cost for them, we're also creating opportunity for people in the future by adding sufficient supply for us to be able to accommodate current and future New Yorkers. And I will note that this is good for housing as its own uh, you know, policy matter. But like when you're talking about employers and local economic activity and the opportunity to grow and start start grow a business in New York City, you, you know, if your employees can't afford housing, you're going to make other choices. And if your employees can't afford housing anywhere in the vicinity, you're going to make other choices. It's not productive for you and for your employees if it doesn't work out. New York City happens to have a lot of strengths. We are a city which is, uh, you know, it is a densely populated city. We've got great mass transit. We want to lean into those advantages. And one of the great exciting things about New York City is having 
you know, mixed use communities that thrive, where you have commercial areas that have a, you know, how that have housing on the perimeter, where we want to strengthen those town centers. We want to be able to enliven our streetscapes. We want to be able to add affordable housing in high density areas that are great and near near transit and have lots of amenities to them. We want to create a mix and a vibrant, robust city, which is uh, our best our best approach toward uh, the next 60 years of growth and evolution in New York. Uh, But there is no question that there are some people who will look at any change and they will say, this is bad for me. Um, But what we would ask of them and of their representatives is to look at this bigger picture and to recognize that a healthy and thriving city needs to be able to house its current and future population. And we're trying to do this in a way which is thoughtful and makes sense. Now, as it relates to homeowners, I do want to note that we have a lot of homeowners out there in New York City uh, whose homes were built before 1961. Uh, and their homes, as a result of zoning changes, which is which have happened over time, have become out of compliance with the law. Uh, and as a res- as a result of that, when they try to get insurance or when they try to make any physical changes to their structure, they hit a buzzsaw of regulations and problems. We want to give relief to those homeowners. We want to give them a chance to have a little bit more flexibility on their own property. We want to give them a chance if they have a garage um, or an attic that they would like to convert under 800 square feet to be able to use for an additional unit of housing, either for a family member or for a caretaker or for, um, you know, even to generate a little income to pay your mortgage. Um, We want to support middle class homeowners in this way. They're doing this all over America and it works. And New Yorkers should have these same opportunities. It is good for their bottom line. It's a good way for wealth creation. It's a good way to pay the bills. It's all of those positive things. And so for homeowners in New York City, we really do want to cut them a break and give them a chance here uh, to have a little bit more sense to their own property rights. All right. As as we dig in on some of the specific planks here, that's obviously the plank on accessory dwelling units that I mentioned in the introduction. This is a situation where you have, um, you know, this obviously just came up in some of the discussions at the state level. A, does does your accessory dwelling unit proposal need state approval? Uh, No, not to add an accessory unit to a single family home. Mm-hmm. So for the single family home, right? Yeah, if you go from two, that, if you go from two to three, you are on the line there of what becomes uh, a two family home versus what might uh, pick up the rules in the multiple dwelling law in the state of New York. Mm-hmm. So that is the area where it would need state relief. And this is where the conversation will again shift to Albany uh, very soon in the new year, depending on what the governor and the legislature decide to prioritize this year, which gets into all sorts of complications. We'll come back to that in a minute. But, um, you know, this is interesting where you also get into a situation where you have a lot of homeowners who would want this flexibility, and then you have other homeowners who don't want lots of their neighbors to have this flexibility. So it's, again, it gets very interesting on the sort of politics and the community voices and who's coming out to the meetings and who's being heard on that. Uh, after accessory dwelling units and allowing those, um, 
in these other planks here, is there any other that you want to go to yeah. next? You want well, me to I pick would like that? to let me just wait, yeah. let me add one yeah. additional point on accessory dwelling units because yeah, I please. think it's it's so interesting the politics of this conversation because to so many New Yorkers, it is an opportunity for them uh, to legalize something, a structure which is already on their property, which everybody knows and recognizes as a physical, uh, you know, uh, obstruction, whatever is already there. Uh, and for others, it's a worry. Oh, my goodness, this is going to change everything in my neighborhood. Um, I think in reality, this is, you know, we, we know what zoning opportunities do. And it is something which which creates a little bit of change over long periods of time. So what what I believe will be the actual result of this is uh, a sprinkling of uh, additional accessory units here and there in various neighborhoods across the city. This is not going to be something which is fundamentally changing anything. Um, and that is also what we uh, how we crafted the rest of our low density proposals, including the other pieces here, which I'll talk about now, uh, our transit oriented development uh, opportunities. Um, where we would like my, to- my favorite my favorite subtopic within housing is why do we not have a lot more housing near every uh, every subway hub. Well, so, there you go. go. Well, that certainly um, motivates this proposal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we have defined very specifically that if you are within walking distance to transit and you're on a wide street and on a qualifying site, that you should be able to add a uh, small apartment building, you know, up to five stories. Um, and these are... Um, in areas which today already have a fair number of uh, these sorts of buildings, even though I think when you close your eyes and you ask somebody, what do you picture in a low density area, they might picture like single family homes and white picket fences exclusively. That really is not what we have in our one and two family districts in New York City. We have 14,693 buildings that have three or more units in our one and two family residence districts. About one in five homes in one and two family districts are already in buildings that are larger than what today's zoning allows. So we do have buildings like this. It's just that they are older buildings. And frankly, they were there before a lot of the newer buildings came to be. So what we want to do is re-enable these missing middle type of multifamily apartment buildings, three to five uh, um, stories on very specific sites near transit. We also want to take commercial uh, strips where you, when you move around New York City, you know, there's a lot of single story commercial out there. The laundromat next to the deli, next to the health clinic um, with nothing above. An area which could very easily accommodate housing upstairs, which would have the benefit of adding more customers to those businesses, enlivening the town center that is that commercial area that exists today. But you can't, under zoning rules today, you just can't build it. Why? Because you have parking regulations, which are so significant that you can't actually meet them while doing what we're proposing to do. You have rear yard, side yard requirements and overall FAR limitations that make it impossible to even add that three to five story apartment building on that commercial strip right there. And of course, there are buildings that are out there just like that in New York City. They just predated 1961. We want to bring them back. It's smart. We recognize these as a city. 
they're they're a well-recognized and well-embraced form of housing. We should bring that back. Um, uh, other points on um, on the low density area, really just for homeowners, there are lots of buildings out of compliance. We want to be able to, to, to bring a two-family home and have it exist in a two-family district. A multifamily home should be able to exist in multifamily districts. Our zoning rules today, it enables some of these things and then it it taketh away the opportunity through additioning additional overlaid regulations which have come into place over time. On the transit-oriented development, this, and again, I already said, this is one of the areas that I'm most focused on in these conversations. And obviously this was a piece also of the governor's state statewide plan for the whole MTA region. But um, so, so maybe this is sort of confirmation bias for me, but this jumped out at me as one of the areas where it seems like you're not going that big to say three to five story around tr- subway hubs seems like a relatively small amount of housing right near mass transit and that we should be aiming to allow bigger than that. How did you land on that uh, yeah. sort of that cap? The way we landed on that was uh, to consider the sort of building forms that are on the margins of low density areas. And we wanted to be respectful of the fact that there are some of these, in fact, even many of these that exist on the margins of low density areas. Um, they are not enabled today. They are functionally barred today through our zoning rules. Um, you know, a skyscraper does not belong everywhere. Uh, we want to be able to res- respect the existing context of neighborhoods while also allowing for responsible growth. That's what we get with this missing middle type of housing. We think that when you enable this across the wide geography that is New York City, you will generate a lot of units over time. Uh, it's consistent with uh, the the neighborhoods that they, uh, they will occupy. Um, and it's one of the arguments that we will make uh, to the local representatives and community boards as to why they should embrace these sorts of changes. Uh, and be, in contrast to other proposals, we think that this is um, something which which hits the right mark. It enables, to your point, Ben, it is exactly where we should be creating opportunities, but we're creating a lot of opportunities across the whole city here and not just in a single neighborhood. And also we're trying to respect on the margins, the existing context of some of these uh, neighborhoods around the city. Is there any way to think about transit-oriented development in a uh, in a more targeted way? In turn, and I know part of the whole gist of this entire endeavor is to not be too targeted and too specific by neighborhood, but to work on things that apply, you know, citywide in so many ways. But is there a way to look at? Uh, the sort of map of the city and think about areas around transit that more, you know, more development, bigger buildings would be not so out of the current character and sort of targeted a little bit more where you have more density in some places and you do the three to five story that's in this plan in others? I mean, we do that all the time at the Department of City Planning as it relates to individual applications or even neighborhood-wide changes. Um, When you're taking a citywide approach, though, you have to do this with a level of care and thoughtfulness, which will be apparent to all when we get into this environmental review process. you know, we're making rule changes which affect all, and in this case, all R1 to R5 districts around the city. 
So we need to uh, be careful in our moves and we need to define this properly so that we get what we really are after while not having you know, dramatic change in individual neighborhoods. It's a much easier thing to do what you're describing when you're looking at a specific neighborhood, you're looking at a specific set of blocks around transit, and you can be assured that in this Department of City Planning, when we are faced with those opportunities to add density around transit, we like to go big, we like to go uh, more significant because that is consistent with our overall policy goals. It's important for our environmental prerogatives as a city. And of course, it is a great place and a great way uh, to be able to live right there as close as possible to a train station. So we certainly get that in a citywide approach. We want to make sure that we hit the right mark. All right. Next, uh, uh, converting offices to housing. Yeah. This seems like it's something that uh, keeps coming up. Uh, ditto with the hotel conversions that, that don't seem to have happened. People want to, you know, take advantage of the COVID shifts and and all sorts of things. Where obviously most of our overall hotel capacity wound up needing uh, pretty quickly again, but offices seem to be a much uh, stickier arrangement from uh, the hybrid work from home models. Um, what are you? proposing here that can actually make office conversions to housing work. There's some different there's some different pieces to the equation that you're proposing here around rethinking apartment sizes and models here that could actually make this make this happen. Yes. Yes. So I spent a good part of 2022 chairing a task force that was created by the city council to look at office to residential conversion. And when we brought together stakeholders and experts and unions and tenants rights advocates and um, uh, city council, et cetera, the thing that we learned was that the biggest obstacle for an office to residential conversion was number one, the date of construction of the building, and two, the geography where the building was located. Because as a practical matter, and this is what I'm about to say has exceptions, but as a practical matter, if your building was not built before 1961 and you're not in Manhattan, you really don't have much of an opportunity to do an office to residential conversion today. Um, so this group recommended changing the date of eligibility from 1961 to 1990, a natural date because it came right after a significant drop off of commercial office development in the late 1980s. Um, and changing the geography to enable this citywide. Um, and, you know, by making these changes, uh, we estimate that we will enable another 136 million square feet of commercial office space to, space to convert to residential. That's more office space than even exists in the entire city of Philadelphia. And we don't expect that all of it is going to convert, nor should it all convert. But at a ninth, at a moment, we have a 19% vacancy rate for our commercial office buildings in New York City and a housing crisis and rules that have just gotten 
well past their useful life, um, we think it is time for us to change both the date and the geography to enable more of this to happen. We think this will generate, you know, 20,000 units over a decade. Uh, and um, and that is part of this proposal. I will note that, you know, your uh, your comment about this has been this conversation has been around for a while. We did ask the state and the governor did put in her budget last year doing all of these things um uh, and fast-tracking this for us, which would have been great. It didn't happen, uh, but we have the ability to do um, the, the things that I have just mentioned ourselves through zoning. So we are going to do those. They are part of this proposal now. Do you need any type of tax incentive program in place to – there's there's actually two, two parts to this question that sort of seem to um, – almost contradict each other, which is to make this feasible, do you need any type of tax incentive to make it happen? And on the other side, there's people who want any type of office uh, conversion to housing to have affordability mandates as part of this. And that will surely come up in these conversations with the uh, at least the borough presidents and the city council members. Um, talk about sort of the those financial pieces and the affordability requirements and whether um, you know, you're thinking about any of that coming into play because, of course, on the tax incentive piece, again, this goes back up to the state and and whether there would actually uh, be some sort of bargain coming most likely next year, if at all, uh, on a variety of, of tax policy related to housing. So within zoning, we have the ability to change dates of eligibility and geography. Um we do not have the ability to create new tax policies through zoning, but we would very much like to see a tax policy coming out of the state that would incentivize affordable housing through office conversions. That is not something that exists today. That is not something that could exist through zoning. That is something, however, that we want the state to deliver because we would like to incentivize through the process of, of, of office conversions, uh, the creation of affordable housing. And that's something we can't do ourselves. Um, a market rate conversion of office uh, to residential, that is plausible without a tax incentive. You need the tax incentive to get the affordable. And we would like the state of New York uh, to create that option because we think that this is a great way for us to get some affordable units out of one of our, uh, uh, you know, our broader policy prerogatives, which is, you know, dealing with our office vacancy issue, need to create housing. Now we also have a chance uh, with state tax policy, if we get it, to create some affordable housing in the process. Part of the reason that it's it's plausible to do do it at market rate is because you're talking about through zonings, changing the sizes and the types of apartments and sort of returning to the ability to have more of uh, sort of single room occupancy type of housing, correct? Well, actually, when we talk about when we talk about the uh, enabling smaller units and shared housing, it really is to enable that in other contexts, because today our zoning strictly for him, uh, forbids a, a building of an entirely of uh, studio apartments, for example. Not that anybody would necessarily want a building of all studio apartments, but we have something in our zoning that is called the dwelling unit factor, 
which is a mathematical equation that you put into your calculus and it tells you the number of small units you can have in a building. Our building code, fire code, health code, they all well handle the life and safety rules for individual buildings. Zoning, we don't believe, should limit the number of small units that you have in an individual building. Uh, so to your question, your question about office conversions, we are going to enable through uh, through zoning the ability to uh, to to enjoy more relief from the the existing rules if you are before 1990 and if you are in a broader geography. Um, and if we also change that dwelling unit factor, it could enable smaller units. They are they those two proposals though could they are independently meritorious. And they are they each can be their own separate sort of consideration. So office conversion without changing the dwell, dwelling unit factor, still good and important. Uh, office conversion uh, with the, the same number of units that are currently defined, you know, still limited by all of the challenges of converting an office to residential. You need to have windows, you need to have access. Uh, you need to have all of the upgrades for a residential building, which is very, very complicated. And if we add, the changes to enable smaller unit. It's just a it's just an additional piece of the puzzle. But that piece we would like to apply more broadly as well. No, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I I I sort of assume that to make the office conversions feasible, you would need some of those changes as part of it. Um to, to not have to have uh all those requirements in place because of the floor plans of the of the offices that's interesting it's actually one of the reasons why it is such a challenge for office buildings to convert because not all of them are appropriate and could possibly abide by the 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 need to upgrade to residential conditions uh, we've got office buildings in new york city that are physically cutting a core into the middle of the structure to allow for windows on the interior which, as you might imagine, Ben, is an extremely complicated and expensive proposition, uh, but they're doing it because they really want to do the office to residential conversion, and that is okay. But it's also the reason why, even though you are enabling 136 million square feet of office to residential, uh, does not mean that you are going to get 136 million square feet of office to residential because it is complicated and expensive in the process. Yeah. Um, you want to end parking requirements that come with new development, new housing. Uh, this is obviously goes back to pieces of our conversation already, where you're going to have people who currently live uh, in the city who are worried that the more people you add, if you don't add more new parking, it's just going to become harder and harder to drive and park around. Say a little bit about the importance of doing away with parking requirements uh, that are in place which is not the case everywhere in the city, but that are in place. And if there's anything to be said to counter those concerns, or is the answer simply to most people, we have a lot of great uh, mass transit and you got to figure out using it more. I, I actually think that this it's a much more nuanced proposal than I what I suspect will happen out there in the public discussion. Um, what we are proposing is to end the mandatory minimum number of parking spaces in new developments. Um, that does not mean to say that there will not be parking in new developments. 
In fact, we recognize that there are certain places of the city that you better put parking in new developments, whether we mandate it or not. Uh, if you don't create that parking in some new developments, you're going to have an issue. Uh, so the, the dynamic here is that the 1961 planners of the Department of City Planning prescribed within an inch of its life the number of minimum parking spaces that you must have in every single zone, in every single district, every single development across the city. 25% here, 50% there, 100% here, 150% here. As if such a thing could be known with that level of provision, it, with a precision, it can't. Uh, and we understand that today, that it also can't be known with that level of precision. So what we are proposing to do is allow for the natural inclusion of parking where needed in neighborhoods where it is important. Today, we, you know, we see situations where somebody's adding a 10-unit building in an R6 district, when they get to that 11th unit of housing, they have a 50% parking requirement. They got to add in six parking spaces and they say, forget it, forget it. I'm stopping at 10. I'm not, I'm just not doing it. Those parking spaces, which average citywide at $67,500 to build average, and that includes your $5,000 blacktop and a single family home and your $200,000 per unit, you know, when you're digging deep in the foundation of a building underground, uh, you know, in downtown Brooklyn. It is it is expensive. It, it is being done at the at the cost of housing in New York City. We we come to this conversation with a recognition that we do need parking in some places. And we also believe parking will be provided in those buildings and neighborhoods where it is needed. The mandate is the part that is old and has outlived its usefulness and no longer makes sense, uh, we're no longer going to prescribe the specific number of minimum spaces in these buildings. All right, I only have like 10 more minutes with you here, and I have two hours worth of questions to ask you. So uh, <laughs> let me let me fire a few things at you here. Okay. Um, so uh, the we haven't gotten to everything here, but I want to zoom back out a little bit. Um, in this 100,000 unit forecast that you say these zoning changes, you know, could produce, are there any pieces of this that are significantly more than the others in your forecast? If I, unless I missed it, I don't see any sort of range even of units attached to each, each of the planks. Are there any of these, um, for example, one of the ones we didn't talk about, which is, which is about opening up sort of the use of um, what you call campuses uh, to more development, which can include uh, properties owned by certain entities like uh, churches or a, a NYCHA. Um, there's uh, another one we didn't talk about yet, which is uh, a universal affordability preference, where if uh, the housing is has certain affordability requirements yet to be determined, uh, it would allow for for more development and certain you know density bonus uh, type of thing. Um, but are there pieces of are there are there planks here that you think would contribute an outsized sort of portion of those 100,000 units that people should know are maybe the most important ones to focus on or do here because they would be the most productive? Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned the universal affordability preference because I was going to flag that for you. That was a pretty big that is a pretty big piece of this uh, proposal. And I wanted to make sure that we talked about it mm -hmm. here. That yeah. one, we believe, is a significant portion 
of where we need to go. And to your point, Ben, um, what it does is uh, it expands on an existing program that we have that incentivizes senior affordable housing only. In certain geographies of the city in medium and high density areas, we give you uh, as a property owner a roughly about a 20% bonus in your development if in that bonus you deliver permanent affordable units for senior citizens. That's a great program. We're happy about it. We want to expand that program in those geographies to allow for all types of affordable housing, not just for senior affordable, but you know more general affordable plus supportive housing, all affordable types. We want to be included in that bonus and we want to expand the geography. We want to expand the geography beyond where it has been to date and include all medium and high density districts around the city to give that bonus for affordable, senior affordable and supportive housing. This is a uh, a significant part of this proposal because, you know, this is where we get, you know, those incremental gains are for affordable units only. So you take an example of a you know, a, a, a church that is looking to expand, create a new church uh, and put up, uh, you know, a, a 35 unit building up top. Um, you know, they're a three FAR. This might put them at a 3.9 FAR. That 0.9 differential, all of those units, which in this case would be another 10 to 12 units, uh, is permanently affordable housing. We like this proposal as a way for us to create the incentive to give us more affordable in these areas. Why why are why would developers do this if if the density they're getting has to be all affordable? Doesn't that make it financially less interesting to developers? Or is I mean, that dependent upon new tax breaks that also still need to be negotiated? Look, in zoning, it comes with the density bonus. So it comes with a benefit, but also obviously with tax incentives in the state, that changes the ball game for so much of the things that we do in New York City as it relates to private interest in development. Um, you know, and, and this is a really, there's two points I wanna make here. One of them is everything we're doing here within the boundaries of New York City zoning, mayor, city council, we can get this done. Also, everything we are doing could be significantly enhanced through state action, state tax incentive, uh, lifting the FAR cap, a tax incentive for affordable on office conversions. There are a lot of additional relief for accessory dwelling units from two to three. There are a lot of things that the state can do here that will uh, that will really turbocharge what we are doing in local zoning. And, and the, the, the third point I wanted to make is that because we're looking at this from a trajectory of the next 60 years, we're gonna be talking about this in 2083, Ben, we're, we're gonna have this conversation, we're gonna be old guys, you know, really old, uh -huh. and we're gonna be having that, we're gonna be sipping a cup of tea and we're talking about the changes that we did in 2023. Um, and there will be tax programs in the state that will come and go, interest rate environments that will come and go. These are long-term changes that we hope will enable all of these types of uh, you know, housing growth across a variety of neighborhoods over time, but everything can be uh, significantly enhanced through state action. On that front, I have to ask you about two big pieces of the state agenda, which which we've either uh, sort of referenced here or you've explicitly uh, uh, mentioned by name. Getting the state to lift the floor area rate 
ratio cap, FAR, uh, as you referred to a couple of times, and the state creating a new version of the expired 421A program. These are obviously two huge priorities of the Adams administration. These were uh, parts of uh, the governor's proposal, uh, did not make it through the legislature, obviously. Do you have, uh, Is am I correct to say these are basically at the top of the wish list? And is there any sense that you're building momentum going into next year to get progress on 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 these fronts? Definitely uh, high, if not the, the very top of the wish list here, um, at least as it relates to the subject we are discussing uh, today. Um, and I think that there was a, you know, a recognition in, in Albany. I don't want to speak for Albany because... I've never spent a ton of time in Albany, and uh, so mm-hmm. I I, uh, I understand it as far as I understand it. But I do think that there is a recognition from uh, you know the, the the representative, the city representatives in Albany, that um, they want to get something done here as it relates to housing. There is a deal to be had. There's an opportunity to be had, and state action can really complement what we are trying to do in New York City. So when we are having our conversations with individual council members uh, and the speaker about the the specific details of this zoning proposal, we are also having a parallel conversation with our friends and allies and colleagues in Albany, particularly those who represent New York City, to make sure that everybody understands how these things work together. Nothing happens in a vacuum here. State tax policy is is critical to the success of all the things that we do in zoning. Uh, And we're going to connect those dots. We have enough time here uh, to be able to make this case and to to share the details and also to to do the work necessary to get a a thoughtful plan uh, uh, passed up in Albany, too. How does the City of Yes zoning uh, change proposal interact with the neighborhood rezonings? You mentioned this early on. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction that this was sort of the uh, one big piece of the de Blasio administration's approach uh, was rezoning a number of of neighborhood and community stretches, and that had all sorts of uh, pitfalls with it. you were part of a, a sort of different rezoning, which is which is more focused on office uh, space in East Midtown. But um, how at, at city planning, how do these potential changes to the city's zoning resolution fit together with the notion of doing more neighborhood plans and neighborhood rezonings? I, you know, we view them as complementary. Um, you know, we have already a number of neighborhood plans and studies underway, whether it is the Bronx Metro North stations in the East Bronx, Mars Park, Parkchester, Van Nest, uh, our aim up plan on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, Jamaica, Queens, Midtown South. These are already uh, plans that are underway at the Department of City Planning in partnership with the City Council, uh, and those will proceed. Um, We view this moment as a yes and moment where this is not a like we only do this thing and then we wait and we sit and we do that other thing later we have to do all of this right now the mayor's also put real um uh he's put a, a lot of energy into making sure that we get things done faster try to eliminate red tape to be able to build more quicker we are trying to find ways to do just that so there is a 
a complementary approach here. We want to make sure that we're addressing neighborhood plans as appropriate where we see real opportunities. But this this proposal for City of Yes for Housing Opportunity is a citywide, you know, a little bit everywhere. Try to do it with finesse so that we're not actually creating radical change. Be able to get us to some very, very big results. Um, and it's something that, you know, we think it meets the moment that we are in in New York City today. And lastly, uh, um, and appreciate all the time, certainly, uh, Dan Gorodnik, uh, the mayor, this has been one area of the mayor's agenda where, or as far as I'm concerned, as a candidate running for mayor in 2021 or even late 2020 when the race really started, um, through his time as mayor, he's been very consistent around sort of his focus on the broad need for New York City to grow its housing supply, to take a multi-pronged approach to it. He's put in motion a number of things that you've mentioned in terms of trying to cut through red tape and different proposals. And of course, now this zoning text amendment uh, plan and Albany agenda, lots of things. But for, this, for any of this to happen, the sort of mayoral leadership and, and mayoral support is going to have to remain and be extremely strong. Um, uh, can you capture for people from your position, obviously the mayor appointed you, and that's a very important relationship here, but um, can you capture your sense of the mayor's commitment to seeing all this through, to making sure that something close to this zoning text amendment change is what passes you know, gets passed at all, and is what passes through the city council because this isn't necessarily going to be the easiest year ahead for this proposal. Um, and and there's a lot of other moving pieces going on as well. Can you capture for people your sense of the mayor's uh, commitment to this? I can. Um, you know, for for those who didn't see his his speech on the subject, I highly recommend it. Um, he laid out all the details of what you and I have just been talking about in a comprehensive way and in his own words, which I think is really important. Um, I also can say that, you know, I have been talking to the mayor about this proposal over many months. He has been incredibly clear and unflinching and unwavering in his instructions to me that my mission is to find ways to create housing in this city and to find ways to do it thoughtfully and completely. And every moment where there has been an opportunity for us to consider one route or another, he has been without any hesitation clear about his commitment to deliver big results for New Yorkers in this area. Um, so uh, all I can say is I, I know I know what my instructions are. Um, I know what we are proposing here is big and significant, and I think that there is a recognition uh, in the administration, certainly mayor, the mayor understands it, um, that this is hard stuff. It's um, he even said in his speech. Well, I get it. He's a he's a homeowner, too. And and mm -hmm. there, this is this is um, this is this is hard for people to talk about. It's hard frequently to understand. 
Um, but it is really important for the bottom line of New Yorkers and to give the relief to people that they need. It does not need to be this way. Our policies are not reflecting our values. And that is the mandate that the mayor has given me. And so we we hope uh, we'll look forward to having a, you know, a, a complete conversation about this with the with the council and other stakeholders. And uh, and uh, I, I, there certainly should be no question about the mayor's commitment on this one. Yeah, there's going to be some very interesting, you know, moments for the borough presidents and a bunch of city council members to see, you know, if if uh, when push comes to shove here, they're they're living up to a lot of the as we discussed early on in this conversation, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that's shifted and been out there over uh, the course of the last couple of years, especially as the conversation has shifted. Um, and it seems like you have some really significant allies in government uh, from some of the borough presidents already and some council members and the city council speaker, who's obviously a huge uh, player on the field here, you know, put out a, a, a fairly supportive statement uh, right away about this plan. And obviously it will go through its process um, and I would just wanted to reiterate for people some of the other things we just spoke about here, a, a new 421A uh, tax incentive for development of affordable housing, um, the neighborhood rezoning plans. These are other pieces that sort of would build around uh, on this 100,000 new home estimate that we're talking about with these zoning proposals, because that's where you get to the potential of 500,000 new homes over a decade that the mayor, you know, is shooting for. Um, so that there's a lot more sort of to the broader discussion, which we've touched on some here. Dan Gorodnik, any last thought, anything we didn't get to, you want to make sure to get in here or we, we, we covered enough ground well, for you here. We, we, we got, long, we so. got to, we got to a lot, right. Ben, and I really appreciate your, your taking the time and, and certainly your interest on this subject. Um, and, uh, and we will look forward to, uh, continuing this conversation as we, as we go through the process. Absolutely. Thanks very much for all the time. Be well. Thank you. 